This is The Guardian. Today, rare protests in China call for the end of COVID restrictions. And in some places, the end of Xi Jinping. What you're hearing right now is rare, and from the perspective of China's leaders, incredibly dangerous. It's the sound of students at Beijing's Tsinghua University calling for a free media and less censorship. In other places, they're calling for the resignation of China's president, Xi Jinping. Many also holding up blank sheets of paper in a symbolic protest against state censorship. What started as demonstrations in some cities against China's ongoing attempts to completely stamp out COVID have, over the past week, become a national show of defiance. In Xinjiang's capital, Urumqi, they're protesting against a fire in a lockdown apartment that killed at least 10 people, including children. At the Foxconn factory, the world's biggest manufacturer of iPhones in Zhongzhou, workers have risen up in frustration over strict COVID quarantine rules and claims of unpaid wages. China's giant censorship machine is in overdrive, determined to make it as if those protests never happened. China has regular protests, but never like this. We've had Xinjiang, Tibet, outskirts of Beijing, Shanghai today. Amazing scenes of people. Nationwide, spreading from city to city, and in some places, calling for change at the very top. And yes, the spark of it was about COVID lockdowns, but it's everything. It's the greatest show of civil disobedience in China since Tiananmen Square, and it's left Chinese leaders in a trap. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, how far could China's COVID-0 protests go? Tanya Brannigan, you're a Guardian writer and a former China correspondent. I'd like you to start by describing for me what daily life is like for someone living in a big Chinese city like Shanghai in terms of COVID restrictions. Well, in fact, one of the striking things is how variable it is. So there's clearly a large number of people who feel that the COVID restrictions are completely out of control, uh, are impinging on their daily life, upon their ability to earn a living, on all their sort of fundamental freedoms. And then there's a huge number of people, uh, especially outside the big cities, um, who've just been able to sort of carry on completely unhindered. But where controls do come into play, they can be incredibly tough. I mean, when we talk about lockdowns, we're not just talking about people being told to stay at home in the way that sort of happened in the UK, for example. We're talking about people literally being unable to leave their compounds at all. And so they're not getting out for daily walks. Um, they're not allowed to sort of go and buy groceries. Uh, and we've also sort of seen, of course, all kinds of other stringent controls. We've had cases, extraordinary cases, where people, thousands of people at a time, have been sort of locked into somewhere like Shanghai Disneyland. It's sold as the place where dreams come true. In zero COVID China, it's a dream people raced to wake up from. 
or IKEA stalls because there have been just a handful of COVID cases nearby. So you may have seen some of these videos that have sort of done the rounds of almost like zombie movies, kind of people rushing out of these shopping centres or IKEAs and things because they think they're going to get trapped there. And at the extreme, what we've seen is on occasion people simply being unable to sort of access the care they need. So there was particular upset over the death of a child who reportedly couldn't get medical treatment uh, due to a lockdown. So it has been very, very variable, but in places very tough, uh, very repetitive, very long lasting. And it's clear that in some places, at least, people have simply had enough. It's pretty incredible to think that a lot of the restrictions that the rest of us lived with in early 2020 have just become normal life for many Chinese people for what's coming on nearly three years now. At this point in China's COVID pandemic, are people still complying with these laws or do they have to be heavily enforced by the police? It's definitely um, a mixed set of reactions. I mean, there are many people who still feel that this is a very positive policy, um, I think especially among those people who haven't been so impacted in it. So, of course, it's easier for it to seem like a great idea if you're not somebody who's kind of been locked up in your compound for weeks and weeks on end. But it's definitely the case that people would look, understandably in a way, at um the US or Brazil or somewhere and think, well, you know, you've had this huge number of deaths. The US has seen a million deaths. Uh, Imagine the scale of deaths we could have had in China, especially with fewer ICU beds. You know, this has saved a lot of lives. But as time has gone on, and of course, as people have seen that other countries have been able to sort of keep deaths down through vaccinations and other measures, then definitely the support for it has started wearing much thinner. And Tanya, do we know why the Chinese government has maintained this zero COVID strategy when so much of the rest of the world has simply moved on? I think this is one of the big mysteries in a sense. And I suppose part of it is simply that once they'd nailed themselves to that position, in a sense, it became much harder to move away from it, both in terms of, I suppose you could say, a loss of face, but also because they'd said to 1.4 billion people, this is what we need to do to save your lives. This is the only way to keep you safe. And so it's hard for them to move away from it. Tanya, lots of countries tried to take that zero COVID approach that China's taken, but found that it was either impossible or too costly. And then more recently, we found that vaccines are actually incredibly effective at bringing down rates of death, so much so that COVID has now faded into the background for most of us. Why hasn't the pandemic played out in the same way in China? I think that's a really good question. Um, So there's certainly the sense that this year, The party wanted things to be very smooth in the run-up to the party congress, where Xi Jinping was going to be sort of anointed as a sort of leader indefinitely. What's hard to know is why they didn't push harder in encouraging people to get vaccinated, particularly older people who seem to have been perhaps the most resistant group in China. And of course, the question of why they didn't use more effective foreign vaccines. So it's not that by any means that the Chinese vaccines were useless. They, They obviously have been helpful, but... Um, some of the foreign vaccines would have been much more effective. 
So the issue here isn't that China doesn't have vaccines available. It sounds like what you're saying is the vaccines they have are not particularly effective and that they haven't really been pushing their vast population to actually go and get the jab. So there's a feeling, I think, that this was partly a sort of prestige and national pride issue, uh, that they were reluctant, perhaps, to bring vaccines in from outside. And then, yes, it is a mystery, really, why they didn't use this time to really promote vaccines heavily and really push that through. Because the really striking thing is when you look at the huge amounts of human power and time that has been poured into the zero COVID policy in terms of the endless testing, you just think if that had been put into a vaccine program, China would be in a much better place now and it would find it much easier to relax zero COVID without the very real danger of a surge in cases, particularly affecting the elderly. And up until this outbreak of protest over the past few days, had there been much public discontent in China about this policy? There'd certainly been grumbling. And in fact, there had been an increasing number of protests over the course of this year. So one estimate said there were around 80, I think, between June um, and sort of perhaps a week ago, and that they'd sort of definitely picked up from September onwards. But we were talking in these cases about very localised protests, sometimes on the level of sort of people essentially breaking out of locked down compounds, for example, just sort of bursting out past the security guards going, right, we're, we're going shopping, you know, we need food now. Um, but people have been very careful, I think. It's been a time of sort of increasing repression in China, really, over the last decade, even before... Xi Jinping took power and sort of more so since he did. And so people have become very cautious in what they say. There's more censorship uh, of the internet and social media and so forth. So nobody was really anticipating the kind of outpouring that we've seen over the weekend. And was there any sense, I mean, let me put it this way, if you had spoken to a Chinese leader two weeks ago and said to him or her, what is the roadmap out of zero COVID? What would they have said to you? Like, what was the Chinese government's official plan to getting back to normal? I think this is one of the things that has really baffled people, um, that it was very hard to discern really whether there was a clear plan and what that plan was. There were sort of hints of loosening in some regards, but it just really wasn't very clear how China when or how China thought it might get out of zero COVID. And so it began to seem, I think, to many people um, as if zero COVID was forever, really. Tell me about the incidents of the past few weeks that cause this pressure that you're telling me about to build up to the point where it starts to boil over? Two things really have stood out in the last week or so. It's the latest instalment of Spain against Germany. The odd thing really is the World Cup, which I don't think anybody anticipated having an impact. And amongst the 60,000 excited ahead of this one. But it does seem as if audiences in China started seeing all these crowds uh, crammed in together, celebrating maskless. The touch from and suddenly thought, gosh, the rest of the world really is quite different from us. So it's not just about reckless America saying we don't care about a million dead 
you know, we'll just do whatever. But places like Qatar, too, seem to be sort of getting on with ordinary life in a way that we only dimly remember. And then the terrible thing that happened was this tragedy in Urumqi. A fire that broke out in the capital of China's far west Xinjiang region on Thursday night. A family, including, uh, we believe, two children, died while under lockdown. And footage shows the fire engine trying to spray the sort of burning building from rather a long way away and not managing to do so, suggesting that it couldn't get into the compound or, or face some other problem due to sort of zero COVID policies. Blocked with fences, tents and metal barriers that are normally used as part of COVID measures. What adds to the tragedy is that those who died in the fire likely spent their last three months largely confined to that building, if not entirely. This tragedy really struck a chord with the public here because these scenes of suffering. And so this weekend, we saw this protest at Urumqi Road in Shanghai with people sort of coming out in solidarity. And then these vigils and protests just spreading incredibly rapidly across the country, across major cities, Beijing, Shanghai, uh, Chengdu, Wuhan, Lanzhou. And also through elite universities. And that, again, is something that the party will worry about. So it's not unusual to have protests in China, and there have been much bigger protests than these ones. But what really sort of stands out about these and what will make the authorities feel very threatened by them is that they've happened in so many places, so many big cities. They've brought together different parts of the population with, you would have thought, very different interests. There's a sort of contagion in the sense that they're clear, they clearly have spread as people have seen what's happened in one city. They've started doing it elsewhere. It seemed as if, to begin with at least, even with China's incredibly extensive and sophisticated censorship, that it, the censors just weren't able to sort of keep up with all the information that was out there. And then on top of that, we have seen protests that firstly are not just about local grievances, but that are directed at a national policy that has the seal of approval from the very top. And in some places, those protests have morphed into outright demands for things like human rights, press freedom, and most damningly from the party's point of view, people calling for Xi Jinping or the Communist Party to step down. And Tanya, how common is that? I mean, I know there are often protests in China about different issues, but how common is it to have this kind of nationwide movement spreading almost by contagion and calling for China's president to step down? Are we in unprecedented territory here? The way this has spread is so astonishing. It's like nothing we've seen for decades. Now, it's clearly not on remotely on the scale of what we saw in 1989, for example, with the pro-democracy protests that you know started off in Tiananmen Square and then spread around the country. It's not on that scale. It hasn't got the sort of the breadth of involvement. But nonetheless, these are incredibly unusual protests. 
And in response, we've seen over the past couple of days a huge police presence in cities like Beijing and Shanghai, as well as some reports of people who were part of the protests beginning to be contacted by police. What kind of official reaction do you expect that we're going to start seeing? Clearly, the censorship is stepping up now. And I think realistically, we'll probably see differentiation in the treatment of different people who are obviously more or less explicitly political. I don't think anybody will expect to be untouched if they've shouted out a a statement calling for the overthrow of the party. Whereas somebody who's simply held up a blank sheet of paper or sort of asked for an end to zero COVID may be differently placed. We have seen now in Shanghai that they've simply blocked off a lot of the area where the protests first took place on Saturday. There's certainly more of a police presence in in major cities from what we're hearing. So it sounds as if they're now sort of poised for more people to come out. They are thinking carefully. And it may be, of course, that protests of this kind just fizzle out as they sometimes do. So the authorities may hope that's the case. And you mentioned that some people involved in these protests are just holding up blank sheets of paper. What's the significance of that act? What does it mean when they do that? Well, some people actually sort of pointed explicitly to an old sort of Soviet joke with uh, somebody being carted off for holding up a blank sheet of paper because everybody knows what it means. (laughs) Nobody has to say it because everybody understands what what the issue is. It's actually a tactic as well um, that was used in the Hong Kong protests. And in a sense, I think it shows both the way that protesters on the mainland, even given the censorship, have managed to pick up information and tactics from elsewhere and will be looking to a variety of different movements. Because I think as outsiders, we sort of there's an instinct to sort of put everything in, in the light of 1989. But of course, many of these people will have looked at Black Lives Matter protests, for example, and other movements around the world. And also within the Chinese sense, there's because there is so much censorship, people have become very clever and very quick in finding ways to voice their dissent, which don't involve actually voicing dissent, if I can put it that way. So we saw people writing on the internet, just posting these posts where it just said, good, 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 which is apparently also now being censored. So whether it's through sarcasm or evasion or these other means, people are very creative, I think, in their responses and in finding a way to say what they want to say, or at least imply it. Coming up, could these protests mean the end of COVID zero in China? Tanya, we've seen just in the past day or so that the Chinese government have said they're going to ramp up vaccinations for older people in particular. And at least one official has acknowledged people's complaints, saying some local officials may have overzealously enforced the country's COVID zero policies. But what about the policies themselves? Is there any chance that these protests might push the Chinese government to say the protesters are right and they're going to adopt a more flexible strategy? Well, I don't think we'll see that until the policy is actually materialised. I mean, it's just not the way that sort of politics happens within China. Um, The Chinese government 
actually knows that it has to be responsive to the people in some ways. I think people outside tend to think that it rules entirely through repression, and that's just not the case. Um, It's also succeeded by often giving people at least some of what they want, um, even if it's only tardily sometimes. But in some ways, it would not be surprising if this actually saw a sort of doubling down on zero COVID almost, because at the same time, they don't want to be seen to be giving in to public pressure and public demands because of the sort of precedent that that sets. So I think certainly some people feel that this might well be more likely to lead to an extension of zero COVID than bringing about its end. When you say that the Chinese government's response to this, to these protests might be to actually double down on the policy, it makes me think that COVID zero in China has ceased to be purely about health, if it ever was. And maybe part of the problem here is that it's become somehow intertwined with the Chinese government's legitimacy and the legitimacy of the president, Xi Jinping, that COVID zero is now about much more than just containing COVID. Yes. And I mean, I think there are sort of two strands to that. One is that we've seen governments around the world use COVID as an opportunity to increase their controls uh, of their population. But the other one is that the Chinese state, because it doesn't have the legitimacy of having won an election, you know, it doesn't have that democratic mandate, it's really rested on, first of all, the sort of economic well-being of its people, um, which clearly has ebbed in recent years. As we've said, things have got tougher. They're not enjoying the same sort of growth that they used to. But then also on that sense of, well, we're the people who protect you and set China on this course to sort of greatness and wealth and comfort and safety. Um, So I think it does really feel connected in that sense too, that there is something about the COVID controls, which is related in the minds of people and maybe in the minds of officials too, to the broader controls that the Chinese party state imposes on its people. Hmm. I suspect I know the answer to this, but you said that some of the demands of the protesters is that Xi Jinping stepped down. Realistically, based on what you've seen so far, is there any chance these protests could end in that result? I don't think so. I mean, I would be just absolutely astonished. Um, The security apparatus is so huge. I mean, people talk about Chinese military spending, but believe me, the sort of domestic security spending is higher. Um, This is somebody who has sort of such tight control. There are no signs of fissures at the top of the party. I mean, I really don't think anybody sees this becoming a regime-threatening issue. But I do think these protests still matter because they really um, are a testament to the fact that people don't have that many ways of expressing their discontent right now. It's an increasingly sort of censored internet realm, for example. People have said that even in private conversations now, they feel they have to be more cautious in what they say. So it feels like a very sort of tight environment. And I think it really sort of shows that repression on its own can keep tamping these things down, but it doesn't really deal with the causes 
of the unrest. And so I will imagine that the party state is perfectly capable um, of seeing off this protests by more or less repressive means as it has done in the past. But the challenge it really poses, I think, is to make the leadership think about whether this path of increasing toughness, increasing control, is really one that is sustainable in the longer term. Tanya, it sounds like, on the one hand, if the Chinese government do loosen their COVID restrictions, that's going to come with more deaths, with more problems in public health. On the other hand, if they maintain COVID zero in the way they are now, it's clearly going to stoke more tensions and potentially more protests. So it sounds like they found themselves in something of a trap. How do they get out of it? I think it is really difficult. Um, it's, a, it's a trap of their own making in a sense, um, but, but it is a problem for them. I think they do have a serious problem if they just relax the controls. And I, in fact, I'm not really sure that anybody is suggesting they should just drop all the controls. And that includes probably some of the people protesting. I think people would say, you know, you can see a way out of this in which the Chinese government would say, well, that worked really well. Now we're in a phase where we can just move to vaccinations, masking, rigorous testing, isolation for individuals, uh, and so on. I don't think people think that's going to happen. And I think there is a real risk that even if you still had those controls in place, you would see uh, a sharp uptick in deaths. So I think they do have a problem, which is the country is under-vaccinated, it's got problems with sort of healthcare facilities in terms of certainly not enough ICU beds and so forth. It's a genuine problem. You know, just a few weeks ago, Tanya, we covered on this show, in fact, the Communist Party's 20th Party Congress, in which Xi Jinping was essentially sworn in as leader for life. And it was very carefully stage managed to project this image of a harmonious, confident country ready to take its place as the world's leading power within a few years. What do these protests tell us about the state of China instead? Well, I think that they tell us that China is a much more diverse country um, than people sometimes realise, that there are still people who, for all the propaganda uh, and for all the censorship, still are keen to find out what's happening in the world outside and uh, to sort of extrapolate from that when they sort of look at what's happening internally, who are questioning, who aren't simply sort of buying the party line. Um, and I think it shows us that they are also willing at times to sort of take risks to express that. The nature of China, and particularly, as I said, the the way that things have become much tighter in security terms over the last few years, is such that it's just impossible for us to know how many people are sort of happy overall, unhappy overall, which aspects of the sort of the current leadership's approach they support or oppose. But that there is clearly dissent there and there's a lot of frustration there, um, which I'm sure the party's aware of because it's always paid a lot of attention, in fact, to the, the, the public mood. It doesn't necessarily move with it, but it wants to know what the public are thinking. And you would think that now was the point where they would have to really seriously think, have we got the measure 
uh, of things or do we need to look at this again? But it's not clear that this is a system that's really built for that kind of feedback where, where the top is willing to listen. Yeah, I guess we'll find out how flexible they're willing to be over the next few days. Tanya, thanks so much for speaking to us. Thank you. That was Tanya Brannigan, a Guardian leader writer who lived and worked in Beijing as a foreign correspondent. Before we go, tonight we're going live. Join me and Nasheen Iqbal for a live streamed episode of Today in Focus, looking back at some of the major news stories of 2022. We'll be joined by political editor Pippa Crera, UK technology editor Alex Hearn and foreign correspondent Emma Graham Harrison. Tickets are still available. Just search for Guardian Live or follow the link from our podcast page. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Alex Atak. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. And we're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. 